And now if you'd stand with me as we come now to the Bible, um, and we're looking particularly at Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. And um, I will read out for us from verse uh, 22 uh, to chapter 9, verse 1. So let's hear God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. Rochelle and I were somewhat amused uh, when we asked our children to, in exploration of how well they knew their parents, uh, we asked uh, one of our children when dad was born, and the answer came back, um, 69. 
And then Rochelle, with a twinkle in her eye, looked at the child and, and looked over me and said, yes, but what, what, when 69? And our child said, 1769. Uh, it's easy, isn't it, to be half correct. I was indeed born in 69, uh, but actually fairly fundamentally wrong. Something like that is going on in this passage. Peter is correct. Jesus is the Christ. Um, but he is incorrect as he resists the idea that the Christ must be crucified. And in our passage, a Mark, in this pivotal moment of the gospel, this hinge point of his story, where Jesus' identity is revealed in a profound and highly significant and important way, Mark constructs the story with an illustration at the front that's referred to again at the back end of this part of the, of the narrative that illustrates uh, this half getting it but actually getting it wrong or seeing but not really seeing. The illustration comes from the man who was healed, the blind man. Uh, first time I read that story, perhaps you had the same experience. Uh, you wonder why Jesus needed to do it again, to heal him again. Did he not get it right first time? Was he not powerful enough to heal him fully first time? Why, why did he need to heal him again? What's going on there? Well, the answer is that uh, Mark, as he constructs this story, and uh, Jesus, as the story is told about Jesus, is using this healing of the blind man his physical healing, whereby he sees but does not yet fully see and then clearly sees, as an illustration of the spiritual sight, the spiritual seeing, seeing uh, that we all need. So the blind man sees, but he only sees uh, men as uh, like trees walking. In other words, his vision is very blurred. He can't see them appropriately. His eyes are, uh, are seeing but he's not clearly seeing. He isn't really seeing. And then when Jesus heals him again, then he really sees. Now, at a spiritual level, not a physical level, Peter similarly sees, uh, but then does not yet really see. And so this story is about seeing and then the need for us to really see. Uh, the seeing is in the first part of the passage. Uh, we're told that Jesus is walking with his disciples and he asks them a question about his identity. The very heart, of course, of Mark's gospel is about who is Jesus and then what should our response be to who Jesus is. And so this has been brought out again. Who do people say that I am and who, is, who, who am I? Who is Jesus? And uh, they reply what people are saying about Jesus um, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. So this is a very common answer still today, maybe using slightly different categories. Uh, but still today, if you ask someone who is Jesus, they would tend to say that he's a great teacher, he's one of the prophets, he's a, a fantastic moral example, and that's as far as they would go. And similarly in those days, 
Uh, people tended to say that he was a, a great teacher, he's Elijah, that is one of the, the most famous prophets or another one of the prophets, or John the Baptist who's a recent prophetic figure that was much admired by the people. So he's one of the prophets, he's a teacher, he's a moral example. That's what people were saying and that's often what people today still say. Most people don't have a negative view of Jesus, they view Jesus in some kind of positive way but they tend to stop at verse 28 where he's merely one of the prophets, merely another teacher of some kind or other, or merely an example, a moral example. So then Jesus uh, turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? That may be the popular opinion as it is today. If you did a survey of the country, you would find that most people view Jesus in a positive light, but as a moral example or a great teacher or something like that. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? Now Peter sees. Remember the illustration of the man who was blind and he sees. Peter sees, uh, that, uh, and this is a major insight that is given to him. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, we're told it was revealed from heaven. It's major spiritual insight. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, what did uh, Peter mean by saying that Jesus is the Christ? Those of us who grew up in church circles will probably be familiar that the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. And the Hebrew Messiah is translated in English as anointed one. And that category of Christ or Messiah or anointed one has deep roots deep trajectory that is then landing now in the New Testament from the Old Testament, right back to the book of 1 Samuel, when Hannah, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, prophesies that there will be an anointed one or Messiah to come. And the immediate fulfillment of that was David, who was the anointed one, King David. So the anointed one means the king. For the kings were anointed to show that they were set apart as the king. The anointed one is the king. It was King David as the immediate fulfillment. But as we know in the story of the Bible, David was by no means a, a paragon of virtue. He was by no means a perfect man. He sinned in various ways. Though a great king, he was not the king. Though a Messiah, an anointed one, he was not the anointed one. The anointed one was great David's greater son. And so Peter, having been with Jesus, realizes, has this spiritual insight, he now sees that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, or as we might simply put it, the king. He's not merely another moral teacher. He's not merely another prophet. He's not merely John the Baptist or merely Elijah. He's not merely an example of, uh, uh, of um, good ethical behavior. Jesus is the king. He is the authoritative figure. He is the fulfillment of the promise in the Old Testament. He is not just a king. He is the king of the whole universe. He is the Messiah. And that's a major insight he's seeing, but as we'll see, we'll, we'll discover in just a moment, 
uh, Peter still does not see clearly. Now we'll get on to the seeing clearly in just a moment. Before we do that, we need to camp here for a moment. Because this insight, though it is not seeing clearly, is a very important insight that Jesus is the King, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King, not a King. And we need to apply it to our day in two slightly distinct ways. First of all, we need to apply it to those who are not yet Christians, which may be you or your friends. As I said, most people today have a positive view of Jesus. But they view Jesus as one among many other uh, prophetic religious leaders. Uh, The common phrase is that Jesus is just a path up the mountain, and there are many other different paths up the mountain. Uh, Technically, this is called relativistic pluralism. Many different paths up the mountain. That is, uh, this syncretistic, many different religions approach to life is the dominant worldview of our friends today. So we need to think how this claim that Jesus is the Christ can be applied to our context. Why is it that Jesus is not just one among many different paths up the mountain? Well, the answer to that is you have to understand the category of what is being claimed. Jesus is not saying that he's a king. He's saying he's the king. He's not saying he's a prophet. He's saying he's the Messiah. In other words, to put it in the category or the language of the many different paths of a mountain, what Jesus is claiming is not that he's a particularly good path up the mountain. What is, uh, what is being claimed in the Bible, what Peter is seeing, what Jesus is receiving is correct, a real insight, a real sight spiritually, is uh, not that he's one among many paths up the mountain, but as it were, he is the mountain. He's not merely a way to God. He is God. And that, of course, is a very radical claim. And that's why Jesus um, here tells them not to go around blabbing about it inconsiderately because it will, of course, get into great trouble and lead eventually for him to be put under trial and crucified. And many people today find it deeply offensive as well. But we have to face up to the, the claim that is being made. As difficult as it may be, And as troubling as it may be for our world today, Christians do not believe that Jesus is merely a prophet. We believe that he is the Christ, not just one among many paths up the mountain. And you say, how can I possibly accept that? Well, I still think probably the best answer to that comes from C.S. Lewis's famous, what he called, trilemma. Um, or what has been called uh, in, uh, in, in summary of his argument. Basically, what C.S. Lewis says is, we have to accept the claim that Jesus is making, that he is the Christ, he's the son of the living God, he's, he's the incarnate son of God. Jesus does not merely say that he's a prophet or mon- among many other prophets, and therefore we cannot merely say about him that he's a prophet or an example, because a good man would not claim to be God. A highly moral teacher would not claim to be the Messiah. You cannot patronize Jesus by merely saying that he's one among many prophets. He, he claims too much for that. You must either reject Jesus as a liar or insane, or you must accept him as the Lord. There's a decision point that needs to be made about this claim that Jesus is the Christ. So we need to take a moment to let this teaching here that Jesus is the Christ land in our contemporary context 
for the world outside. But it also needs to land in our contemporary context for those who name the name of Christ, those who are Christians. Let me just give you one example of how important I think this is today to think through clearly and understand this sight that Jesus is the king within Christian circles. One Christian university, not, I hasten to add, in Wheaton, somewhere else, one Christian university has recently come out and said that they will no longer hold the biblical line on uh, gender and sexuality. Now, what should we say about that? Here is my question to that university. Who is your king? Ultimately, the issue of all these complicated matters that we face today in our living in Babylon and our, our cultural changes around us, ultimately the issue is not the issues themselves, but who is our king? For Jesus himself, in his word, um, addresses uh, the, the, those issues. In the very next chapter, chapter 10, uh, Jesus says this in verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6, he says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Well, um, university, who is your king? Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Who is your king? Or he carries on, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God has uh, set up uh, marriage. Who are we to separate it? This is Jesus' teaching. Who is your king. Now, you notice that I distinguish between a message for those outside the church and for those within Christian circles because, as we'll see as we get into the, the fullness of seeing, it is, uh, this is from Martin Lloyd-Jones's phraseology, a great preacher from yesterday, it is a heresy to expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. So if you're not a Christian here yet and you're struggling with gender and sexuality, my message to you is to look at Jesus and let him figure out all those things in time to come. But if you lay in the name of Christ and you're claiming that Jesus is your king, well, my question to then, is he really, if you're not following what he teaches in this or many other areas? Uh, we could mention materialism or racism or many other things. Who is your king? So I'm, I'm taking a moment to, 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 to camp here because this authority of Jesus through his word, Jesus' words are not mere suggestions. We don't read the Bible and say, well, this is what Jesus says, but I think. We read the Bible as a word from the king. And in my, in my own discipleship, this has been a growth curve for me. When I was younger, um, I used to think that given enough time, I could solve most of the problems theologically that, were, that, that I came across. And, uh, and I, I used to think that if I exercised my brain enough, I would solve those problems. I could, I could sort them out rationally. And indeed, uh, many things I managed to figure out in a way that at least satisfied me. 
But what I've discovered as I get older, and I don't think it's just because I'm losing my marbles as I was born in 1769, but um, <laughs> as I've got older, I've realized that actually there are many things about life that I will probably never understand. And I need to lean not on my own understanding, but trust in him, which doesn't mean I don't think things through, but I think them through from a framework of ultimate trust in him as my king. And there's lots there in that whole area I've just mentioned to figure out and think through and maybe wrestle through. But the landing place is he's the king. And his word are not, is not a suggestion. It's a command. Now, having said that, you remember the, the, the whole story, the whole passage about seeing and then seeing clearly. To see that Jesus is the Christ or is the king is on its own, is not seeing clearly. If we just rest there with this authoritative claim that Jesus is the king, we will end up the message of authoritarianism, even aggressive message. But actually, to see clearly, what we need to see is the next part of the story, uh, which comes uh, right afterwards. And so Jesus uh, is uh, continuing with them, and he's teaching them, verse 31, that uh, the Son of Man, that is he himself, one of the ways he used to refer to himself, because the Son of Man from the Old Testament was a figure of divine-like proportions with human categories, and therefore it was a, a useful category from the Old Testament for Jesus to begin to explain what it meant to be divine and human. He's the Son of Man, this divine-like yet human figure from the book of Daniel. Anyway, so he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In other words, now we're turning from the Christ to the cross. And he said this plainly, but Peter did not see clearly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh, Jesus, you must be off, uh, you're, you're completely off base here. You, 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 the Christ, the king, cannot die. You are an authority figure. You're the authority figure. You cannot die. He rebukes Jesus, but Jesus then rebukes Peter. Now notice, amazingly, what Jesus says as he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. In other words... To only see that Jesus is the Christ, but to deny that the Christ must be crucified, what is that according to Jesus? It's a message of Satan. It is a satanic message to merely affirm uh, the, the, the kingship and authority of Jesus without, and, but, but then deny the necessity of his crucifixion. Uh, that, that's a message of Satan. Why? Because you've got in mind the things of God, uh, the things of man, not the things of God. Yeah, brothers and sisters, uh, we we talk a lot about proclaiming the gospel here at the church, and we summarize it as discover Jesus, grow in our faith, and impact the world. What this means is, as much as we must, as a church, talk about the scriptures, elevate the authority of Jesus, apply that to the complexities of our day, land in Jesus' authority and kingship, the king that we worship, that king 
is a crucified king. What does that mean? It means that he, our king, your king, Christian, loves you so much in all the brokenness he knows about you and all our sinfulness, he loves us so much that he died for us on the cross, which means that we are people who what? Forgive each other, love each other, grow together, gradually learn more what it means to follow Jesus our king. Have mercy on each other, for he has had mercy on us. We discover Jesus, then we grow in our faith. We're not perfect. We grow. We want to grow. We want to develop. We want to to improve in in our discipleship, and it takes time, and we develop and grow, and then one day in heaven we'll be perfect then. But we worship a king who's a crucified king. And the message of Jesus' kingship that is not cruciform is deformed. It is where the power is to to preach and to um, believe that this Christ uh, is the crucified uh, Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul reflects on this famously at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, uh, where he he says there in uh, chapter 1, he says, uh, verse 18, for the word of the cross, uh, this uh, emphasis on the cruciform, the cross-shaped nature of the message, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. That's where the power is, in the cross, the Christ who is crucified. And again, reflecting on his experience here in chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, that is Jesus the King, and Him crucified. So this seeing clearly requires us in our preaching, in our messaging, in our advertising, in our discussion, in our Bible study groups, in our discussion groups, to always have the cross, the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the gentleness of our Lord, the, the, the Lord Jesus who washes feet, who, who gets dirty into the mess of life and comes alongside, for whom the woman caught in adultery and everyone else is trying to judge and condemn her, he says, uh, to those, do you, let him who's out sin cast the first stone. And then to the woman, he says, uh, is there no one left here to condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And then he says, neither do I go now and leave your life of sin, which is not saying that you can just carry on in your pattern of life, but is saying, I love you, I forgive you, I'm for you. Now go and start again. And all that comes from a cruciform understanding of Christianity, a kingship. of If we only have a message that is about the authority of God, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, as important as that is, if we only have that, we're only seeing unclearly. And what the result of that will be a sense from the people we're trying to reach that all we're about is authority and power and control. Instead, what we must have at the heart of our messaging is the cross of Christ. I, I, I was having a conversation, a man who, a uh, very um, intelligent academic who lost his faith, 
And I was asking him what the issue for him was. And as so often in these conversations, in the end, the issue was personal. For him, it was suffering. And what I said to him was, but don't you realize we who are Christians worship a God with the scars on his hands? It's a Christ-centered and a cruciform-shaped messaging. But it's also a cruciform-shaped living. And that, of course, is the second part of this, not only the preaching but the living, to see clearly we need to have that as our messaging but also our living. And this is from verse 34. Uh, Famous words that are often misunderstood. Uh, Jesus said this, uh, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's helpful, by the way, in this passage to realize that the use of self and soul is the same uh, word there in the Greek. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life or his soul or his self will lose it. But whoever loses his uh, life or soul or self for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now look how Jesus then concludes. Remember the illustration, the blind man seeing and then clearly saying, seeing, now at the end, chapter 9, verse 1, he says this, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. To see the kingdom of God with power is to see that Jesus is the Christ and the crucified Christ. Then you see Now, what does it mean practically in terms of our life, these words that Jesus says here? So often this is preached in a very guilt-inducing, condemnatory kind of way, and it's to miss the point entirely of what Jesus is saying. What you have to grasp is the way the Bible is put together in this particular um, vein along, uh, along the wood. And we, ourselves, were originally created good, Utterly good. And that meant that ourselves were created to be in relationship of loving obedience with God. That's how we were made. But that's, of course, not how we are. Ourselves are now broken. And that means that the self, originally made to be in a relationship of loving obedience with God, has become uh, what we could call the selfish self. So by nature, every single human being on the face of the planet now has a self that is fundamentally orientated towards what they want, towards their own preferences. That doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they possibly could get. By God's common grace and his kindness, we, we humans do remarkable and loving and kind things. But what it means is that throughout it all, There is this tendency that we all have in the end to have a selfish self. Ultimately, uh, the question is so often what's in it for number one? What's in it for me? What are my preferences? What am I getting out of it? And in fact, you can analyze the whole of human history and, and the economics of our world around that understanding of the way humans are made. 
uh, that we are fundamentally self-orientated because of the fall, because of the sin when it entered the world. That's who we are now. But Jesus came and died for us on the cross to set us free. And for us to be free and for us to be a Christian, essentially what it means is to have the selfish self die so the renewed self comes to life with Jesus as our King. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not merely a cultural affirmation. It's not merely a set of ethical values. It's not merely a theology. It's a fundamental change of the inner person. So now we're orientated towards Jesus as our King. The selfish self dies. But now we're brought back to life as we originally designed to be. Uh, the illustration I often use over the years is a very simple one. If you have a car and you put uh, gas in the fuel tank, it will work. But if you uh, put uh, uh, some other, something else in the fuel tank, it, it, it won't work at all. Ourselves are designed to run on the gasoline of Jesus as our king. And when we come back into orientation with him as our king, then we come to life. Then we are set free. Then we are renewed. It is so liberating, so freeing to be, as the apostle Paul put it, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And now we're set free from uh, fear and anxiety and what other people think about us and where are we going to go when we die. We've already died. Very famously, one of the early church fathers was brought up before someone who's persecuting him this moment that Jesus refers to and said, you, you deny your faith or I will kill you. And one of the early church fathers says, I'm already dead. And then he said to him, I'll banish you to the furthest corners of the world. And he said, wherever I go, Jesus will be with me. And then the persecutor said to him, well, then there's nothing I can do to you, is there? And he said, nothing. If you're a Christian, you have died to your selfish self. You've come to new life, and you now live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And you're free. You have life. Now, in this world... <laughs> All of us are on a journey, us uh, disciples. Some of us are more mature than others. Some of us have more to learn than others. We all have more to learn. And if you think you have less to learn, it's probably a good sign that you have more to learn. We all have development to make in this area and any other. The old person is always still coming along saying, but do it for yourself, you do what you want, fighting around greed and money and food and sexuality and, and all these other things always biting into us depending upon the exact kind of brokenness that we individually have experienced as an aspect of the general brokenness that the human nature has for every person. We all have that going on. But if you're a Christian, Essentially, the selfish self has died, and you've come to life, and you have a new life, and you now have real life in fellowship with Jesus as your king. And then you're seeing clearly. 
when um, our children were a little bit younger, uh, Rochelle, uh, my wife Rochelle, um, was quite creative with the sort of uh, birthday parties that she used to uh, um, put on for our kids. So really quite amazing. She would, and she, I, I think she's, she was at the 9.30 service, so now I can really um, boast about her without embarrassing her. But they're really quite amazing. She, sort of, she would write them out, type them out, little pictures. And, tell, and each birthday party had a little theme, a story, um, you know, gymnastics, and there'll be a story about gymnastics and all sorts of different games. And, and the same with um, uh, the, uh, if it was tennis or whatever. And what she would do is she would take some of the traditional children's games that are often played at children's parties and sort of rework them for the theme. So one very traditional uh, children's game is pin the tail on a donkey. You probably know it. So you blindfold the child and you spin them around many times and they can't see and they try to pin the tail on the donkey and they get it usually hilariously wrong unless they peek under and cheat, which there's always one or two children who'd like to do that. Um, the fallen nature, you see, there it is. And, um, and so, uh, but so we would often do that kind of game, but we have a different, a different variation, a different theme. So maybe the theme was tennis or something, and so you had to pin the tennis racket on the tennis player, that kind of thing. But of course you're blindfolded, so you can't see. Or Peter sees. Jesus is the Christ. But he doesn't see clearly. Maybe you uh, have a particularly fast car, uh, perhaps, uh, or you want one if you don't have one. A uh, Lamborghini or um, Porsche. What do the Americans say? Porsche? Is that how you pronounce it? I can never quite say that word right. But anyway, a fast car. Really good BMW or a Mercedes or something. No, the best. And it can really... And, and internally, though, you know you have to obey the speed limit, kind of. Um, you, you're thinking, okay, this Saturday morning, I'm going to take it out. It's really early in the morning. The cops are out. I'm going to just test out. I'm going to pretend like the loop around Chicago is like the Autobahn in Germany. And uh, I'm going to really put it through its paces. And you get in, it's in your garage, you drive it out of the garage, and you look out the windscreen. And there's a really thick fog. You can hardly see in front of the windscreen like a foot. doesn't matter what's in the engine, you're not going fast. You can't, you can't see clearly. And so many Christians live with this sense of guilt and condemnation because they're, they're living with Jesus as their king, but they're not having a crucified king who loves them and, 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 and intercedes for them and gave his life and the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so many non-Christians I found, when they, they listen to a preacher like me with a black suit and a white shirt and a big Bible and a big pulpit, they think that here I am to give them a moral guilt trip. No. Yes, Jesus is the king. But he's a crucified king. And he gave himself that you might come to life. And that's seeing clearly. And it's my prayer that we as a church and each of us as individuals would increasingly not only see but uh, as the story here has it, see clearly. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, uh, Lord, that we do have a king. 
We pray, Lord, that we might live in loyalty and allegiance to him. We pray, Lord, when there are issues which we wrestle with, and there'll be all sorts of different things that we have here, that we will begin from a starting point, that Jesus is our king and his word is authoritative. Uh, But we also pray, Lord, that we would see clearly the crucified, loving Lord who bears our burdens as we sang earlier in that beautiful song, is gentle and kind and gave himself for us. So he's the kind of king that we can trust and give our lives to. We pray, Lord, that uh, if that testing moment did come where we have to stand up before authorities, may we not be ashamed of your words. Help us to live, Lord, with you as our king in freedom and joy as we worship uh, Jesus and him crucified. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.